Hi, Bulleye Anglican. I'm Dan. And I'm Marg. And we're being sent by you, our church family, uh, to work cross-culturally. The Bible passage today is from Judges chapter 19. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay. So he remained with him three days, eating and drinking, and sleeping there. On the fourth day they got up early, and he prepared to leave. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterward, the girl's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the girl's father said, Refresh yourself. Wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus, that is, Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus, and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on and the, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in to his home for that night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim was living in Gibeah, the men of the place where, of the Benjaminites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you from? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem to Judah, to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his house. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and bread and wine for ourselves, at your servants, me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. 
So he took him into the house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house, so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her. And throughout the night, and as the dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it, consider it, tell us what to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have, have you ever heard something as appalling as this, as shocking and as distressing as this Levite man and everyone around him? And let's not beat around the bush here. I know it's in the Bible, but there's no redeeming features here. Instead, we're exposed here to the deepest gutter of human sin. And any attempt to soften it just implicates it in us in it. It's just wrong on so many levels. And if we read on into chapter 20 and 21, it doesn't get any better. This Levite lies to the assembly and a civil war begins. Attempted genocide of the Benjamite clan follows and then a stupid oath leads to a legalised deception and the kidnapping and forced marriage of some 200 young girls who were busy innocently celebrating before the Lord. These are dark, dark days indeed and all of it happened in the so-called promised land among the so-called people of God. If, if nothing else, this proves that the Israelites were no less evil, no less wicked than anyone else. God said they weren't righteous and now we know what he already knew. But still we wonder, how could this have happened? How could this have happened so quickly amongst God's people? And, and not only how, how could this have happened, how did it happen, but, but what can be done about it? Is there any way to fix this stuff? We need to know, don't we? 
We need to know. We need to know because these events bear on us also. Not only is it in our Bible as Christians, but we're people who also sin dreadfully. What's going on when the people of God sin? What's going on when we compound our sin and just make things worse? We can't ignore it. So let's look at it. Let's find out how does this happen and what's the fix. Let's find out and let's start with the how it happened because we get the answer here. You see, at the beginning of chapter 19, we were given our first clue. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. There's no one in charge in Israel. Everyone did as they saw fit. Whatever their hands and their eyes led them to do, they did. And there was no king to challenge them, no king to keep them on the straight of narrow, to, to set a good example for them to follow, no king being responsible to set things right. And while it makes sense that their lack of a king, lack of some kind of authority, was, was a problem, at the same time it sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? I mean, isn't this Israel? Aren't they supposed to be following God as their king? What's going on here? What's going on? Well, it all began with a sin of omission. It all began with a sin of omission. And omission is when we fail to do something we should have done. You could say it's the sin of doing nothing. And so, you know, think about it. In Australia, it's a sin of omission to not declare all our earnings on our tax return. We're omitting the information. It's a sin of omission not to take notice of the road rules whilst driving. Well, back then in Israel, not to do with taxes or driving, but we're told their sin of omission was their failure to obey God in driving out the other nations in the land. Oh, yes, they had promised they would. They promised that to Joshua. And yes, they had started to do it, but they stopped as soon as it became inconvenient. We read in chapters 1 and 2 of Judges that after Joshua died, the Israelites were led by Judah to begin the work. And it all went well in the hill country, but when they came to the plains of the Canaanites, well, they were iron chariots. And so Judah stopped. And then the rest of chapter 1 lists failure after failure as each tribe refuses to obey and fully drive out the peoples who were left. Judah failed to do it. Simeon also, Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Dan. And when it became clear that they had no intention whatsoever of following through on their promise, well, the angel of the Lord showed up came to them and pointed out their failure in no uncertain terms. This is what he said to them. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. And that's what then happened. Just as God had promised, God stopped fighting for Israel and he handed them over to their choices. 
their failure to love and honour God in their hearts and obey him in their actions and speak of him and about him to one another, it simply meant they failed to remember and teach his commands. And we all know how that works, don't we? When we don't even remember what God's commands are, well, of course we don't teach them. And of course we don't do them and we barely even notice. It was tragic. And it happened all so easily to them, just as it also happens so easily to us Christians today. When we Christians choose not to enthrone God in our hearts each day, it follows that we then choose not to remember his commands, choose not to speak of them, much less obey them. And then these sins of omission lead swiftly to sins of commission, where we commit things that astonish us and horrify us. Where does moral failure come from in the Christian? How is it that a Christian can pursue, actively pursue adultery and hatred? Where does selfishness, bitterness, unforgiveness come from? Where do our lies begin? Where does civil disobedience and failure to protect children and, and abuse other people, where does it come from in the Christian? Well, these sins of commission, these things we commit against others, all begin with those sins of omission. When we fail to love, remember, speak and obey God's commands. Well, we struggle with it today, and that's exactly what they did back then. That's why things went bad in Israel. As they minimized their relationship with God down to a more convenient level, they started sowing the seeds of their own destruction. For having now decided not to drive out the locals, they became allies instead, and allies soon became firm friends who Israel intermarried with. And then they began to worship their gods. 2 verse 12. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. God had told them in advance the precise consequences if they did these exact same things. And now he's true to his word and they meet those consequences head on as he handed them over to their sin. And in Israel, it wasn't long before friendship with the enemies of God became actions like the enemies of God. The precise kind of actions we heard about in that awful reading of chapter 19. What was there? Unfaithfulness in marriage, drunken and deceptive hospitality, refusing to be hospitable to people in need, lewd sexual acts, devaluing of women, self-protection of the strong, rape, murder, callous hard-heartedness towards the abused, false accusation, provocation to war, and to top it all off, 
looking to other sinful people as the ultimate solvers of our problems rather than looking to God. How did this happen? That one sin of omission was where it all began. And so by Judges 19, a few generations on, the wickedness in Israel was dire. And while by now the kingdom of God was supposed to look good, was supposed to look you know, like God's treasured people, it was supposed to be them living in his place at rest under God's blessing. But instead, in Judges 19 in our kingdom table, it now actually looks just like this. God's people intermarried. God's place not fully possessed. God's rule forgotten and ignored. It is a dark, dark day in Israel. Well, that's how it happened. So, what can be done about it? What's the fix? What's the answer? Well, it's worth noting what they thought the answer was to their problems and what they thought the answer should be. We heard about it there at the end of chapter 19, verse 30. Their next mistake was actually to rely on each other. Everyone who saw it said, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. And so they came together to act. And they didn't pause to investigate it properly. And they didn't think to pray and ask God about it and what they should do. Rather, they believed the callous lies, uh, the falsehoods of this callous-hearted Levite. And the answer they came up with was, you know, hey, presto, genocide of the Benjamites. What a great idea. And only after they made this terrible decision do they then come to the Lord in prayer. But they don't ask him whether they're doing the right thing or not. All they want to know is who should go first to enact the plan that they've come up with. What kind of prayer is this? Come up with the answer, irrelevant of God, and then ask him to instruct us on how to do the thing. That's clearly not the right way to go to God in prayer. And so what does God do in response? (laughs) Well, we've already been told that he hands them over to their problems, so that's got to be part of it, isn't it? See, because of his promise, though, God will not abandon them. He won't abandon them, but nor does he bless them as they want. As he always does, in fact, God opposes the proud and gives favor to the humble and because sin has so messed up the heart of this nation well nothing is straightforward anymore they are proud god is opposing them and so well there starts to be this pattern of how god answers prayers in the book of judges you see whenever the people actually do remember to cry out to god well he remembers his promises and he saves them every time he saves them He saves them by raising up judges. And these judges are people who will rescue the Israelites from their enemies. But they will do it in all kinds of chaotic ways. None of the judges appear to rule over the whole nation. Each of them are, well, quite localised with the tribes. It seems that 
none of them or some of them are even in power at the same time as each other in other tribes of the nation. It's all quite chaotic as you read it through. Chaotic in the lives of the judges themselves and chaotic in the lives of the people, these confused people who they're seeking to save. Now on the occasion before us here in chapter 19 and following on what occurs in chapter 20, God doesn't send a single judge on this occasion at the end of the book, but rather he chooses the tribe of Judah to act, a whole tribe to act as judge against the tribe of Benjamin. Why Judah? Why choose them? (laughs) Well, we actually know, don't we? Remember, they were the ones who were supposed to lead the way in obeying God previously. At the very start of the book, they're the ones who were supposed to lead in obedience. So it seems here that now God punishes them for their earlier failure. They reap what they sowed. Sin was so messed up the heart of this nation that nothing is straightforward anymore. And the earlier judges that God supplied are, well, they're all just like Judah. They are all deeply flawed individuals. Ehud was an assassin, Barak a coward, Jephthah a fool, Gideon a manipulator, Abimelech a megalomaniac, and Samson, well, he was a womanizing thug. What what hope is there for Israel when the judges supposed to lead them are so deeply flawed as these people? They can't fix themselves. They can't make good decisions. They don't remember the Lord. They don't pray properly. They can't follow the judges God supplies beyond one generation because even the good ones just keep on dying. And so we get to the end of the book of Judges and the final verdict on this whole period of Israel's history is so depressing. It's there, there in the final verse of the book, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did as he saw fit. It's depressing, isn't it? But wait a minute. That's the problem. But also in there, did you hear it? In there was also the solution. Did you notice The problem was that everyone did as they saw fit. But the solution was that Israel needed a king. They needed a king. What can be done about their sin? They needed a king. They need a king who won't do as he sees fit, but who will follow the Lord. They need a king who will last beyond a generation. They need a king who will rule over the whole land and not just a single part of it. They need a king who will wholeheartedly follow the Lord and not his own. They need a, God, a king who will keep the Lord's word on his heart and on his lips. They need a king whose judgments won't be so punitive that they'll be resisted. They need a king whose sacrifices don't condemn the people, but which save them. They need a king who will transform them to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. But in Israel, at this point in their history, there was no such king to be found. In Israel, amongst the people of God at this time, 
There was no one who understands. There was no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have each together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. As a result, we find this desperately needed king. He's not there in the book of Judges. But we do find him in the very next book, in the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth that immediately follows Judges in the Bible, the life of Ruth actually occurs within the time period of the Judges. These two books overlap in terms of time and what's going on. God doesn't just leave them in their mess. He's active. And as God now pauses to zoom in our attention and zoom in on Ruth the Moabitess immigrating to Bethlehem, the possibility of a king begins to emerge See, one of the great ironies in the Bible is that while intermarriage with foreign women is always the downfall of Israel on every occasion, it's also through foreign women that hope for Israel is found. In the time of the judges, it's through this faithful Moabite widow called Ruth that Israel's future king will come. A king. A serpent-crushing king will come through her marriage to Boaz, who just happens to be from the tribe of Judah. It's ironic, but it also makes perfect sense, doesn't it? The king could never come from entirely within Israel. Israel itself is just too full of their own importance and too mixed up in the world. Imagine what they'd be like if they were also the answer to their own problems. No, no, no. Their salvation must come from the outside. They need a king who is a kinsman redeemer. A redeemer, yes, that bit's obvious, but they also need one who is a kinsman, one who is like them in every way and yet is made of better stuff than them. Now, they're going to have a false start on this issue when they put their hopes in King Saul in 1 Samuel, as we keep on reading. A man who's made of the same broken stuff as they are. Big problem. He's not the answer. No, they need someone who's made of the stuff of God. A king miraculously supplied by God. A king properly fit for the task he sent to do. A king to shepherd God's people with integrity of heart. We're going to find out more about that great king whom God will supply when we open up to Samuel next week. Meanwhile, for us today, the lesson they learned, the lesson God was teaching them, is true also for us today. The lesson that no amount of self-improvement, of you know, just doing better, of just getting it right, no amount of fixing ourselves and just trying harder will suffice. Have you looked at your own heart lately? Salvation for us doesn't come from within us either. Have you looked at your character, your words, your thoughts, your actions? It's dark in there, isn't it? It's scary in there. I look at Judges 19 and I see a true reflection of myself in every word, in every motive, in every action, in every deed that's there. My sin is before my eyes. It burns my retinas and it stuns my senses. What can we do with our sin? What can we do with these filthy garments of self-protection? What can we do with our our false motives and our self-deceit? 
I mean, should we do like this Levi? Do we do like this Levi who, who lied to himself and lied to others to you know, make himself look better? Is that, is that you? Is that what you do with your sin? Is that how you try and handle it? Maybe so, but maybe you don't try and cover it up. Maybe you face it head on. Maybe you attack it like a judge, like one of these judges here, ruthlessly ripping at your psyche in self-hatred, self-loathing, tearing away at your sin, tearing away at your skin, seeking to eradicate it zealously and ruthlessly from yourself. feels kind of good while we're doing that, doesn't it? But I'll tell you what, and you know it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I mean, covering it up doesn't work. Ripping it out, neither of these tactics, these tactics work. We're simply not fit to judge ourselves. We don't have sufficient power to keep our self-discipline on track salvation friends it doesn't come from within us we've got to stop looking within us for this salvation so what can be done or as the apostle paul's going to ask in the new testament who will rescue me from this body of death who who there's only one who can the king the king the king that God himself supplies. The king who comes from the outside, who lives among us as one of us. The king of God's own choosing. And friends, let me tell you what his name is. It's not King David of the Old Testament. Actually, no, this is King Jesus. It's Jesus whom we need to look to in our day. Don't look to flawed humans for salvation like this adulterous woman and her callous husband that we find here in Judges 19. No, we need to look to Jesus, the bridegroom, who lays down his life for the sake of his bride and who, will give, and who won't give her up for anything. And, and don't look to the flawed human judges who arise among us doing what they see fit to try and bring justice to our land. No, no, we need to look to Jesus, the judge of the heavens and the earth, who lived amongst our sin but who did not sin himself. Don't look to human religion. Like we see embodying this Levite in Judges who lived only protect, to protect himself. No, we need to look to Jesus, our high priest who took our mess upon himself and sacrificed his own life that we would be made clean by his blood. Don't look to yourselves. Don't look to each other. Don't look to anything in our world to help us. No, instead, we need to look to Jesus, to God's chosen King, who is the only answer for our sin because your sin happens. My sin keeps on happening and it just keeps on happening and we can't eradicate it from ourselves. It's too deep within us. No, we need to come to Jesus who can do something about it. Jesus, our bridegroom. Jesus, our high priest. Jesus, our judge. We need to come to Jesus, our king. Come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden. 
and he will give you rest. Pray. Pray and ask him to forgive us and to fix us as only he can. Will you do that with me now? Will you take a moment to do that with me? I need this as much as you do. Let's come to our King. Let's come to him in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come to you in all our mess and our sin, all those things we should have done but have failed to do. It leads us on to so many awful one-off repeated sins, all of which leave us ashamed and guilt-ridden to our core. Oh, but you are our king. You can save us from ourselves. Oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Cleanse us and change us. Assure us of your love. And by your spirit, enable us to live for you while we await your return. Amen.